Welcome to the O'Reilly Design Podcast. I'm your host, Mary Tressler. Before we launch into our episode this week, I want to remind everyone that the O'Reilly Design Conference will take place March 19th through the 22nd, 2017 in San Francisco. Visit O'Reilly.com forward slash design con for more information and to register. Now to our episode. This week, I sit down with Randy Hunt, VP of Design at Etsy. We talk about how design and engineering work together at Etsy, hiring for humility, and Randy's take on the great code debate. Enjoy the episode. Randy, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, yeah. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I'd love for you to start off in telling folks a little bit about your career journey and how you arrived at the position you're in today as VP of Design at Etsy. Sure. My career started really in uh, communication design and graphic design. That was the area of design that I sort of first discovered and fell in love with. And it's been a gradual sort of progression since then. You know, and in hindsight, I can rationalize it all the steps and it makes sense. And I've and, you know ended up in a place that somehow magically you know leverages all these things I've learned in the past. But of course, when a lot of those changes were happening, they seem completely chaotic or like they didn't make sense or like big risks or something. Um, but the the short version is graphic design in the context of a design studio when I was quite young, when I was still in um, undergraduate school, mm-hmm. um, studying also graphic design. And there's no big sort of like left turn surprises in this story or anything. <laughs> um, I've been very entrepreneurial for even sort of before design, which informs some of this, but could talk about those things separately if it was of interest, but ultimately left that studio and started my own design firm, which of course, when, what that means when you're like, you know, <laughs> 20, 20 years old or however I was, was like setting up shop in your living room. And then it pr- progressed from there and studied design in graduate school kind of in parallel, but ultimately like left graduate school, continued running that studio, um, met, a cl- met a client who had an e-commerce business kind of a traditional e-commerce business that was like buy wholesale, sell retail. Mm-hmm. You know, they had a warehouse, they shipped out the products. Um, I was basically doing identity work, some marketing communications work for them. But we really hit it off. And as he started to solve another, solve one of the core sort of problems of that business, mm-hmm. we sort of realized, or, or he realized really, that it might be better as a separate business. And then we decided to go into business together uh, in that new business uh, and so we started what ended up being this two-sided marketplace that was called Supermarket. So we co-founded that along with a software developer. And then we ran that two-sided marketplace, including building all the software that the marketplace ran on from the ground up, building the brand, doing all the marketing, all the stuff you would imagine. And it was from that experience that the founder of Etsy became aware of me and my work. And at some point along that journey... I'm editing out a bunch of interesting highs and lows and things. <laughs> but um, the, the founder of Etsy had kind of been away from Etsy for a little while and was returning to the company and somewhat of a, a reboot in a way mm-hmm. and had um, reached out to me and asked me if I'd be interested in being a part of that that sort of reboot uh, from a design standpoint. And uh, so that's how I ended up at Etsy. That's almost seven years ago. And from then to today, you know, um, it has been a progression of, you know, ex- expanding the business, overhauling the user experience many times over, you know, <laughs> adding new products, features, and ultimately sort of uh, other brands and a series of acquisitions and a whole, whole variety of things along there that happened from like a business and user experience standpoint. And from a, from a team standpoint, we've gone from what was effectively a team of two designers to now a design organization that's almost 100 people that 
represents a far, far broader set of disciplines and expertise expertises expertise (laughs) (laughs) than than when we um started you know the the my beginnings at etsy looked much more like what we call product design today Mm -hmm. we're effectively working on on the site right that we're designing the site experience um and now it is far far broader and deeper so we're designing the full like brand experience online and off as well as a lot of user-centric methodologies and insights that informs very much our design process, but also inform other parts of the business. And so that's the that, that's what my position or sort of scope of responsibility looks like today. That's been a built up over time in part by myself. You know, I mean, a, a fair amount of that I'm comfortable taking credit for. Uh, but then there are <laughs> other parts that are also um, in response to business needs. You know, there's some of those, some of the progress along the way was not something I had the foresight of, but something that sort of landed at our feet as something we needed to deal with. And then it ended up being that the way we addressed it or took advantage of that opportunity was uh, through and with design. Interesting. Yeah. You mentioned, and I'm curious about this, and I imagine folks listening are too, you mentioned focus on the user. Who is, you know, I think of your users as, well, as somebody who has a shop on Etsy, as, uh, you know, people that are selling, but also people that are buying. Um so who who how do you define who your users are? Sure. Well, and I, I mean, you're identifying this core. I think not even tension. I mean, I suppose you could look at them as an intention, but they, this is the nature of things that have two sided, like a two sided marketplace. You know, uh, a ride sharing service has the same thing. You know, so the passenger is the driver. It's both, right? Um, mm-hmm. the, this is a common problem. You know, Airbnb experiences this. You have a host and you have a whatever you call me, the customer, you know, the person who stays uh, somewhere. Uh, so that kind of dynamic is is common in a certain domain of businesses or, or, or product experiences. Mm-hmm. And that that is true at Etsy, uh, certainly. Overall, we see Etsy as a company, if we imagine like Etsy Inc., the big umbrella. Mm-hmm. Um, we see ourselves in service of what we call creative entrepreneurs. Mm. So those are those are the, the sellers. Um, in a b- b- more broadly defined than what you might imagine as our sellers, but the, the creative entrepreneurs. Um, so in, in effect, if you're limiting the scope of the conversation to like our two-sided marketplace that you know of as Etsy.com, it's like the supply side of that marketplace and, the, and those people. But when we think about these marketplaces that we run, we also, we also own a, a company in France called A Little Market, which is effectively like a more localized regional version of Etsy for the French market. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some other content functionality nuance differences, but effectively they're they're quite similar. And we th- when we're looking at those marketplaces, we consider the primary audience, the buyers, and the buyers' experience. So this is an audio <laughs> audio podcast, but uh, if you could imagine me drawing some picture in the air, so <laughs> drawing drawing on the whiteboard, uh, when we're looking at that marketplace, it really is buyer first, buyer centric in its user experience. We want to deliver it a wonderful e-commerce experience, a delightful brand experience to those buyers, ultimately in service of the success of those creative entrepreneurs. Right, so okay. It, it, these these things are kind of layered inside each other. So it's not this instead of that, it's this to the benefit of that. Right. Um, and, and sometimes that can be challenging because you can imagine that it, you know a, a person that sells on Etsy has some opinions or points of view or desires for what they think that shopping experience should be like. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are, those can be very valid. 
but we're looking to optimize that shopping experience for the buyers to ultimately benefit the the community of sellers. Sure. Uh, more you can imagine on the other side of our business where we've got a suite of you know suite of tools and services that help a person start and run and grow their business. There, the customer or the user is clearly the creative entrepreneur. But even then, there's always these subtle, you know, user experience touch points. For example, we have a shipping labels program hmm. where Etsy sellers buy shipping labels on the platform. It's integrated with your order processing experience. Mm-hmm. That whole thing is is primarily about the convenience to the sellers, right? Lowering the thresholds of uh, it's just so laborious. Also, giving them better competitive pricing. You can, you know, it's a little cheaper than going to the post office and buying your same USPS label because of this sort of scale we have and things. Um, but there are very, very real user experience implications for the buyer with those things. The ability to automate the delivery of tracking numbers and mm-hmm. delivery status, the arrival of that package in the mail with this consistent label on it with the Etsy logo in the corner. You know, there's a, there, so even these things that we, you know, you view as primarily through one customer's lens or the other, uh, very often they have at least some through line or thread to the the other audience as well. Mm-hmm. That's <laughs> um, cool. That's cool. Uh, deeper inside that question, mm-hmm. I mean, to me, when you say, like, how do you understand who your users are? I kind of described to you some big buckets about how we orient to people. Um, but then inside there, this is where you know, our, our research capacity and capability that we just did not have seven years ago and have gotten much, much more developed on looks at things, um, looks at people in a fairly sophisticated way through various criteria to create, you know, cohorts and segments and sort of groupings of people with shared characteristics that help us inform feature improvements, product prioritization, mm-hmm. um, help shape the roadmap or inform inform things there in ways that aren't aren't probably unlike you'd expect if you're familiar with that area, right? Uh, from certainly from a marketing standpoint, you have you, know, you segment your audience and you target messages and products and features that are that segment is most likely to find um, appealing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the scale of our audience is broad enough that um, there's not one segment that we're, uh, you know, that we serve. Um, right. At any given time, a particular product or feature might emphasize or be prioritized or be focused at accommodating first the needs of a particular segment. Because mm-hmm. we believe that's part of the appropriate sort of rollout strategy or something. But in many cases, we're serving a, a variety of segments. Mm, that must be uh, that must be challenging because, you know, there's all different walks of life that are selling. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 And, and buying. And buying. Know, and um, True. It makes um, it is. I mean, it is challenging, but it is also I mean, in that challenge is um, that's kind of fun. You know? Right. That's um, the point. <laughs> uh, yeah. At, at a kind of a professional day to day come into work and be engaged with your work standpoint. That's actually quite exciting. I think those are. You know, that's a fun kind of challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, and you learn a lot. You get your eyes open a lot. Um, but also, I, my opinion, I, I believe this speaks to the, the health of a business in the sense of its ability to be resilient and flexible. It's not sitting in only one space. Mm-hmm. It's sitting sort of firmly in several spaces. And those different spaces, hopes and desires and competitiveness and economic situations, you know, um, may sort of rise and fall in different ways. Mm-hmm. And I think allows us as a business to yeah, to be a little more uh, resilient or responsive differently than if we had a sort of mono audience, you know, uh, 
with a very, very shared characteristics all in one geography, which can be an easier design, you know, communication, user experience, mm-hmm. marketing problem, um, but also has sort of more of your eggs in one basket. Right. Interesting. So, I mean, you talked a little bit about your responsibilities there, but I, I like, could, and you probably don't have any any day that's the same as the day before, to be perfectly honest, um, I imagine. But I'd love to hear what in, you know, what are your general responsibilities? You have this big team there and, and how do you measure success for design there? Sure. Um, I'll take those kind of in, in, in two parts. Mm-hmm. I mean, really my person, my uh, responsibilities, they, maybe I'll describe them in sort of three audiences or, or user groups, really. One is to our end users and customers, which is around, you know, appropriate, uh, sort of relevant well-functioning, inspiring, sort of meaningful relationship to our brand. And I use brand as like a big, pitching a big tent inclusive of the product experience, but mm-hmm. not only. Right? And in a way, kind of being a steward for how that brand lives in people's hearts and minds. A lot of that we end up doing through the product experience, but many other ways as well. Um, so that's just kind of like fuzzy, nebulous one. And, and my efforts are, you know... Multiple degrees removed from the touch points that actually influence those things, and yet trying to shape both the strategic approach, but also the resource and prioritization to sort of best uh, best address those strategic opportunities. Mm-hmm. Uh, which kind of gets to the second audience, which then looks like the team itself, the design organization, and our partner teams. Maybe best summarized as just team design. Yeah. Um, not only in the, like, here's what it looks like organizationally, but what should the spirit of that team look like? What, what's the cultural state of the team and where do we need to take it? Uh, particularly in the context of a, everything I've experienced at Etsy has always been the context of a growing organization, okay? which means we're constantly adding people, we're constantly changing our relationship to other partners' teams and responding to an evolving business. There's a continual kind of uh, cultural nurturing and uh, shaping shaping of that uh, mm-hmm. for the team. And then the third is really to the other, um, the other leaders at Etsy and helping them. It's funny, it doesn't look like design much or even you know sound like design, <laughs> but it, it is effectively uh, helping them understand and see opportunities for a design skill set and the design team to help them accomplish what they're trying to accomplish. Hmm. Um, I, I've kind of moved past this mindset and it always kind of frustrated me anyway, but this idea of like the advocate for design mm-hmm. or something. Um, one, that feels a little embattled, you know? Um, mm. Like I need to project this thing upon you, <laughs> but it also makes it sound like design is somehow the end. And I definitely see design as the means to an end, mm. you know? And I think this maybe is more symbolic than actual, but I think it's a nice like sort of way to imagine the future. It is in some way, if, if we have successfully educated and oriented everyone to think like designers think or value the contribution of design in the business the way we know it can be. And we've effectively sort of embedded that around the organization, sort of air quotes here, my, like made everyone a designer. Mm-hmm. I mean, like that destination is almost like then the design organization can cease to exist. Like that's not ever really going to happen. This is not how like companies <laughs> right. work. But, but, but in spirit, it's not about, you know, design wants to do this thing or give design credit for this thing. Or, or, you know, please understand the business value of design so that designers are, you know, compensated fairly and have a seat at the table. I feel like those kinds of things are actually a byproduct of helping um, 
our partners in the business accomplish what they want to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's funny. Our CEO just the other day referenced this thing, which is like some old Phil Jackson <laughs> quote or something, you know, he used to, Oh, be I bet he did. <laughs> um, but it's, you know, it's a, I, it's, it, I'm paraphrasing, I think, or re- restating. It was effectively like the score will take care of itself kind mm-hmm. of mindset. Mm-hmm. You know? And I think that's, it. it's like, I, I think that it will be obvious. Design's value will become obvious when we've helped people accomplish incredible things that they did not think was possible without our collaboration. Mm-hmm. Uh, not because I stood up in front of a group of executives repetitively and talked about design. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, um, that's interesting. So, so it's interesting to hear you talk about that because it is, um, you know, it is one of the things that we're we're hoping to cover at the conference in terms of the lens in which I, I'm looking through and, and we've been looking through developing the program is around remapping the boundaries. And it's not about them being remapped for designers. It's about designers actually remapping it themselves in terms of how do you teach other people how to think the way you think and how to problem solve the way you problem solve. So it's interesting to hear you talk about it's not about, you know, let's not bang our, you know, our fist on the desk and say design matters. It's just do the work and it will, it will all start to make sense. And so it's, it's, it's interesting to hear your viewpoint, which feels a little flip from the most of the ones you hear out there, frankly. Yeah, sure. And I, I mean, I, I understand why you would say that, like that, that makes sense to me. I, I think that it's, um, but I don't say it to be sort of intentionally contrarian or, or anything like that either. I think it's, a, um, there's, I think it's possible that design has sort of like a collective chip on its shoulder that it doesn't actually need to have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, it, and, it, and it prevents us from accomplishing the things we so want to achieve. You mm-hmm. know, there's this, there's, I mean, since I've been a professional designer, there's been a dialogue in the professional community that I've been close to, which is like designers need a seat at the table. When designers have a seat at the table, seat at the table, seat at the table, blah, 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 blah. And, and I've seen this in every scale of the, you know, that's <laughs> that's the version of the in-house designer that wants to sit at the table with the marketing department when some project kicks off to the, um, there needs to be a design executive officer at this Fortune 500 company to startups that have a designer on the, founding team or right. more like more likely to be there's every version of that and what's funny to me is having experienced both myself personally and other people who I think we would observe from the outside as having a seat at the table the inevitable next question is and then what right and if you're not sort of interested in capable of prepared to truly participate in the conversation at the table in a way that benefits other people, then it doesn't really matter. And it's, it is totally not about design, right? Like, like design helps design is a part of it, just like any, any, anyone else that might be around the table. Right. Um, but it is not, um, uh, presence there as a symbolic thing should be a side effect. That's not the destination, mm-hmm. you know, totally, uh, totally. And, agree. and I've seen, you know, there are incredible organizations that are actually that, that I think leverage design really well, where you would be surprised to see the extent to which conversation doesn't include designers. That can't possibly be. And and the reality is they've figured out other ways to make sure that perspective is included in the culture mm-hmm. and delivered in the final product. And it's and it doesn't um, it doesn't map to 
designer in every room, in every conversation, designer as the final decision maker, you know, designer as the, you know, most visible leader. And sometimes mm-hmm. it does. It's not, you know, I'm not saying we shouldn't, that those things are bad, but I think that inside the design community, it's easier for us to have this picture that looks like, um, uh, well, a false sense of our own, um, <laughs> Uh, destiny to be like the the thing standing on the podium, right? You know, sort of pr- proclaiming how uh, everything should be. And uh, I just think, you know, what's an example of a, a counter example? I think you take a company like Zappos or something like that, which is effectively um, all about customer service. Mm-hmm. And you could not that I've heard this dialogue, but you could imagine the same thing, which is like, you know customer service needs a seat at the table. We need customer service executives. We need customer, right? And, and you could go down that path and I think have a compelling business. Um, it wouldn't be the same as the design one, right? But at the, at the end of the day, all of these things actually have to come together for the things to be really, um, right. uh, um, really incredible. And, and I think that uh, um, the further and further we start to cast design as everything, the more, um, the fuzzier it gets. Mm-hmm. And the more, and the more, what you're saying is like, um, be a good business person, or be a good collaborator, or you know, um, it, it starts to lose its precision, um, mm-hmm. and it kind of looks like everything, right? Yeah, yeah. interesting. Sorry, it might have might have been a bit of a, a small bit of a rant there. I got no, excited. it was it's, <laughs> it's good. It's I mean, I that's like I completely feel the way you you're describing, which is it's important. It's not the only thing. It's, it's that's a, exactly it. It's a piece of yeah. the, you know, of the recipe. It's the, an ingredient in the recipe for success, but it's not the only one. So, hundred percent. Man, I knit chocolate chip cookies without chocolate <laughs> chips would be pretty bad. It would not be chocolate chip cookies, uh, and yet only chocolate chips would also not be chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> <laughs> Well said. Uh, um, so you're you're talking to John Alspa. Uh, for those uh, listening who don't know who John is, he's the CTO um, of Etsy at the design conference in March. And I believe the two of you are going to sit down and talk about how design and engineering work together. But, you know, who knows? <laughs> Um, that's right. That's, that's right. Um, um, so t- talk to me a little bit about how how you all work together at Etsy, both like within the design team, which is pretty big and across departments. Yep. Um, well, first, I'll say, I mean, I, I think this kind of caveat or context setting is important to acknowledge because, well, some people listening are going to be in very different you know, situations or circumstances. Um, and also I think the reality of it is, is these things don't often stay the, um, stay the same. Mm-hmm. So similar to what I was describing before, like Etsy has been a growing, I mean, it's been a growing business too, but I, I, I mean, a growing organization in terms of the number of people, the functions and disciplines, you know, we feel responsibility for and develop skills and, you know, capacity around. And so the ways we have worked together, um, have changed and continue to change. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes in response to learnings, you know, sort of proactive Im- improvements to how we work, and other times because certain things kind of break break down or don't work as well anymore when uh, certain other contextual shifts happen, and so and so you respond to them. So I think at a really really high level, um, kind of conceptually, and then we can get into some nitty gritty stuff. Um, the 
idea of a um a culture that's very um change oriented mm-hmm. and i mean it's like we are willing to redesign our teams change oriented and also we ship changes to the product frequently you know sort of all along those those scales it's just a, a culture that's very sort of adaptable um is something that is shared among our engineering organization and our um and the product design part of our design org- organization. Not that the other parts of design aren't that way, but I think what we're when we're talking about how design and engineering work together, the real kind of connection fulcrum point for us is the is product design and engineering. Mm-hmm. So this culture of change and being comfortable with change and adaptability is one. The other is the sort of spirit of collaboration. And kind of openness. Um, I mean, this happens a lot in engineering cultures, anyway. Mm-hmm. And and you know, it's very much like the the DNA of the open source movement or something like that. But that sense of sort of um, the generous giving and sharing of learnings and things like that is shared across these um, cultures as well. So because both those teams or functions have some common cultural themes. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this natural bridge that helps them work together kind of in spirit. Then how, do, how does it actually work in practice? Well, as we built that product design capacity, we oriented towards uh, initially a heavy focus on the designers producing the effectively like the, the delivering the pixel to the screen, you know, that the user sees, right? So uh, designers were executing front-end code. Mm-hmm. And a part of the testing and deployment process that engineers were, I mean, right down to designers using our deployment tools we've developed um, in our sort of continuous deployment process and chatting in the same you know chat channels with engineers, queuing up their changes to go out to the production servers to be live on Etsy, right? So we really embedded designers in the same delivery workflows um, which forced them to, you know, develop a shared vocabulary, use the same tools, appreciate the same constraints and lack of constraints in, in those cultures, which uh, creates a lot of. Um, so you have this shared culture, and then you have shared language. Is effectively what I'm saying, right? So that helps them work uh, mm-hmm. well, to, well together, um, and that continues to be true. Many of our product designers continue to work um, that way, or for the when they're at that stage of a project uh, working that way. Um, and the third part I would say is just how the, um, how the teams are structured, like where the sense of team alignment is or, or team identity. Mm-hmm. Um, they're effectively structured the same way. And an engineer and a designer would as much self-identify as being part of the core seller platform team as they would being part of the designer engineering team. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. So these sort of logical chunks of the business or user experience or however we want to describe them. Um, both designers and engineers are assigned to, or how, you know, however you want to kind of think about that, but they're both um, a part of these other sort of cross-functional teams that have an identity and they, uh, and an area of focus, they sit together, you know, they fail and succeed together, you know, and that, that I think creates the, um, it's in those relationships that a lot of the, how does design and engineering work together, um, 
the details of that get answered. Because one of those groups may be much more sort of, we do these two-week sprints and we structure things this way. And there, there are designers and engineers together in that process, right? And another team may work a little differently, but they're the designers and engineers together in that process. They, they have a lot of um, affinity, I'd say, for those kind of business teams in a way that they're a part of. And I think that brings them together around shared goals, around shared user needs, around shared impact on the business, which I think is like is like solid ground for them to it incentivizes working together well, I think. Sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sure. Yeah. Interesting. So what what methodologies do you use and what tools do you use just out of curiosity? Oh gosh. It's that's a it's a really interesting question because it, it varies so much. Um there are where it doesn't vary is where you get to some really, really elemental stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, like I was just talking about, you know, the way the designers will ship in the front end code. Yep, they're sitting there using the same text editors that engineers use and then our same homebrewed, you know, tool sets for how we test and deliver that stuff out in the world. Or they all use GitHub, right? Like there's some right. of this kind of stuff that um, is so elemental and kind of almost like oxygen that, that they share. Mm-hmm. Um, when you start to back up a level there's a whole lot of variety. Um, so the, I would not say that there's one shared kind of like product development methodology philosophy mm-hmm. inside, inside Etsy. And I think we're a large enough organization that some of those things are kind of, uh, are localized. And, and also we're, we're not really the single product company anymore either, you know? So some of our work is evolving an existing thing other parts of our work is inventing a new thing and you take kind of different approaches to some of that work the constraints and challenges and needs are different Mm -hmm. Uh, and you deploy different sort of research methodologies uh, as well along with those different um, types of product development Mm -hmm. you know where they're where they're much more exploratory and you're looking for validation uh, uh, almost like conceptual validation versus some other things that um, look much more like usability and, and efficiency insights right uh, uh, or, or like we're trying to shift user behavior in this particular way it's sort of one way of working which is different than we're trying to tap into or uh, invent a a new sort of um, area of business activity that didn't exist before mm-hmm. yes interesting right so it, it really depends on the scenario yeah, it really depends. I mean, and the, the other, you know, I can get, there's other kind of like software answers. Like, oh, there's been a lot of, you know, people are kind of rallying around Sketch and Envision as right. important tools in the product design process, which is true. I'm happy to talk more about that. But I think those are honestly probably pretty boring and standard <laughs> a- answers. Like, I think it's it's probably what you would find of most other people doing work like that today. I don't think we have any surprising new answers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we're evolving similar to other people in that conversation where for a long time, most of the tools in that space have been insufficient. And it seems like we're moving, like there's a new movement of people trying to make software tools mm-hmm. designed for the ways that designers are working more now. Mm-hmm. And, and we're trying those things out and some of them are working. You know, but but none of them have even been around long enough or battle tested enough to feel like that is the one. You know, right? It does seem like every day there's a new one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and we're definitely in the mode of try, of trying them. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So you um you mentioned earlier culture, and it brings me to my next question because you must really feel strongly about hiring for for culture fit. Um. I'm curious to know what are some of the attributes you look for when you're interviewing? Sure. 
there's a whole set of kind of stuff in a bucket that are about skill, you know, skill set and competencies um, for a particular job. And if I if I kind of take your answer and apply it across the whole design organization, where there are many many mm-hmm. functions, um, those get bucketed. You know, we have different expectations for an art director over here that works in brand projects than we do in a you know user experience research manager. Right? Uh, clearly, they have like a lot of different things. So I'm going to answer this more in the um, what's common across those or, or some things we could look at. Curiosity is huge. And I think it's related to the second one, which is really like potential or capacity for growth. And as we get larger as an organization, it's become interesting to me to consider the possibility that some roles and some people and some tracks of work are very much about tapping into that capacity. Sometimes even like latent capacity or unlocked, you know, there's sort of this potential that has not yet been realized, but you can see it in the candidate. Mm-hmm. And other areas of work are actually, um, this is not, a, it, this is in con, or uh, this is next to the idea of some sort of uh, personal development and a sense of movement and progress a person has and feeling like they're learning or something. But I mean, the, the, the primary contribution of the work, what the team may need is a person who's really, really good at that thing, has a proven track record of it, and is perfectly content and willing to do a excellent job at that for three years, you know, Um, it isn't trying to look to sort of um, progress their career in that same way, you know? So it's a funny thing to look at what potential looks like in those different, those different lenses, Mm -hmm. I'd say. Yeah. There's this potential for growth and there's this potential for um, sustained contribution that fits a certain set of expectations, you know, Um, but we're looking for that, potential the i would say the biggest thing culturally and it's funny because you can this feels to me like it trumps anything else and it's really humility Mm. the nature of how customer centric we need to be and how collaborative we need to be and often how little we know until we (laughs) tried some things and learned them um i find that humility is uh, a strong indicator of success sort of in our culture and like and it's, uh, it can be easy, I think, to interpret that in some kind of like soft way, but I actually um, see as quite the opposite. It's like quite a strong attribute to be comfortable, um, um, to be comfortable with things like, you know, patience <laughs> mm-hmm. and to be one of many voices in the room, mm-hmm. you know, not, not the voice in the room mm-hmm. and to operate in a way that is primarily listening mode for a long time mm-hmm. before you go into answering mode. But that tends to work well culturally for us. And I believe it tends to work well for creating great experiences right, at the, at the end of the day as well. Mm-hmm. It's very, very much like a team, team sport, mm-hmm. um, the nature of how we, of how we work. So looking for those kinds of um, characteristics. Good. So related to that, um, it's kind of a goofy question, but I always want to know what people are doing in interviews. What's your favorite question to ask somebody that's coming in to apply for a position in, in the design group there? Well, something I've been enjoying for myself personally, and certainly as the organization has grown and my responsibility has shifted, the nature of the roles I'm interviewing for and the people I'm hiring personally versus what other you know, leaders on the team are hiring for has changed. I like asking people to teach me something I don't know. <laughs> um, it's like, okay, you've got 10 minutes. Teach me something I don't know. And in that question... And in those constraints, I think are a lot of interesting things. There's a um, one; it gives them the opportunity to introduce a topic 
that may or may not have anything to do with the the job Mm -hmm. or the role they're interviewing for or our company or our domain thing. So you learn a little bit about their, uh, one, just how they respond to that. Do they try to position it as being about the business or the role, which is fine. You learn a little bit about their personality or do they pull something out of thin air, right? Uh, that's probably some topic of interest to them or happened to be, you know, the thing they were thinking about that morning. Who, who knows what it is? Mm-hmm. So you learn a little bit about someone's personality, learn their ability to sort of think quickly. You learn about their communication skills. How can they take this thing and sort of process it quickly and turn it back around and present it to someone else in a way that'll help them understand? It's like this quick on your feet thinking, communication skills, knowledge transfer, what things are you into question um, that. I find um, both fun and and, illum- and illuminating. Um, I also like the time constraint part of it to see with what what people deal with. This is the other thing that only a, only a few people have really um, tapped into. I think, but was there's the opportunity to be inquisitive back. I think, which when you say uh, teach me something I don't know, I mean, is like the next level version of the answer, which is to first like identify uh, if the person knows about the thing or not. Right. Right, mm. which is an, an interesting one too. Just kind of like, uh, not in some like ah trick question, but but um, <laughs> you understand the level at which they engage with questions or problems, and not in a right wrong like you've done it well or not, but you get a sense of um, where their critical thinking skills kind of like start by default. Mm. Uh, so it's saying like, oh, let me tell you about this, uh, you know, musical instrument that I love, is one kind of like version of how things start, and the other is like, are you into music? You know, you start to like re like adjust the answer for the audience. Uh, oh yeah, I am. Like, oh, do you play music? Okay, great. Like, so you start to um, build up an understanding of the audience uh, before really uh, teaching something. I think that's um, that's some good uh, communication and like leadership jujitsu skills. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Right, you get to really look at how somebody thinks through this yep. all. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. that's that's a good one. I like it. Um, so you've been, you've been doing this for a bit there, growing the design organization there. What either lessons or observations have you had along the way in managing? Oh, gosh. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, so many, you know, uh, a few of them anyway. Yeah, there are, I mean, one, I think this comes back to that sort of thread of, of humility or something, but, um, Mm -hmm. just how little we know about any problem we're starting it. Um, part of this maybe just plain maturing in general, like period, you know, uh, mm-hmm. but how little information we have and how much we can learn about just about anything we're in, we're engaged with. Um, to me, that has been like sort of this personal revelation. And mm-hmm. then I, I think I've seen it in the team as, as well. Um, cause effectively, you know, the first set, six, seven, eight people we hired into the team fit the same, like it wasn't a very diverse team. And I don't mean in a gender ethnicity standpoint. In that sense, it was actually kind of quite diverse. But I mean, uh, you know, middle class, 30-year-old, primary, primarily English speaking, mm-hmm. loves this kind of design. You know, there's like a, a lot of kind of shared approach and mindset and methodology stuff uh, that uh, I think when we behaved confidently from that point of view, it was a little echo chambery. Mm-hmm. And e- easy for us to um, uh, self-reinforce each other's assumptions and feel like we are right. And then as we learned more, um, we, we learned how little we knew. Right. <laughs> right. Um, and I think the a related 
related learning or, or sort of observation is just how powerful experienced researchers across a variety of different kinds of research from you know, more um, market and marketing, kind of like communications research to usability research, sort of things in between, uh, just how powerful um, that is for a design organization and a business. When we started investing in that work, it was really, um, it was almost from a place of practicality. It was like, oh, we're trying to do user research ad hoc. The product manager's doing it. Seems like we could be doing it better and they need to stop being distracted by that work. You know, it was a very kind of like operational, like, oh, we should hire researchers and we stop, you know, doing a half-assed job of it. <laughs> People who kind of care about it, but don't really know about it, you know, um, like, yeah, let's get a researcher and they'll help with that work, which is true. They did, but so much more than helping with that work, like the insights, the teaching the methodologies to other people. The empathy building over time, it's kind of like that sustained collection of insights and then mm-hmm. making them present in the culture. Oh, man, it's just, it's shifted, I think, um, it shifted the culture in a way um, just much more than I would have predicted. I think we, we went into it thinking, oh, this will help, you know, we'll allow the designers to focus on design and we'll learn about the products we're building and everything will be a little bit better. This is a good design practice. Mm-hmm. All those things are true, but also so much more. And it's really made me appreciate research as a key sort of um, tenant of um, of a healthy design practice. Mm-hmm. The other big lesson or kind of observation for me is um, how how far we've come by kind of playing like the long game mm-hmm. in a way. You know, I think there are, there have been a lot of opportunities to do some things organizationally, like more aggressively or all of a sudden. Um, but for the most part, we've progressed to this sort of this breadth of expertise and depth and skills that I am really, really proud of. And we've done it like one person at a time, you know, um, it's this sort of methodical, slow, manageable growth. I mean, it's fast through some context, like you know, the speed at which we hire, but, but in general, it's been really intentional really, really intentional. And, um, where we've ended up through that, I feel really, um, really good about, I, mm. yeah, that kind of pacing and a sense of, um, patience and intentionality and kind of trying to design the like scramble out of it, even if the context kind of wants you to scramble, <laughs> uh, I think has worked out, has worked out really well. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Um, so I'm, I'm now going to quote you something on your blog site. You mentioned something that sort of made me think, boy, people would love to hear more about this, which is, um, you said, I believe designers must be able to build what they design, which sounds like common sense to some and sounds maybe crazy to others. So <laughs> I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how you came to this this realization and why you think it's so important. Yeah, yeah. Um, and are you talking about code? You know, you know, is it yeah. is it that or is it something else? Or could it be anything, right? In a way, it's kind of veiled. It's a veiled statement that like designers should code. Um, right, right. Just say it. <laughs> which is a hilarious um, debate at this point in my mind. Uh, as a sort of proponent of that m- way of working and a mindset around it, it's also um, not the only way to work. So I think it's a, it's an interesting debate. I I can very confidently get on one side of it with a lot of um, arguments that I think are quite um, valid. But uh, you can look at other products, other organizations, other teams that don't work that way and are also great products or experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not like there's one way. The the sentiment in it though um, is 
understanding, like sort of deeply understanding how things are put together, how they function and why they work makes you better at making them. And I really, really believe, I think this is true from a, from a business standpoint. I think that, uh, you can stretch this metaphor, right. To, to a CEO of an organization. I always thought of, for me, the, the, at a different scale, the origins of this thinking for me are back in my purely sort of graphic design, communication design kind of upbringing. When I first started going to printing presses to do press checks, to proof jobs, to make sure, you know, basically to do quality control, mm-hmm. like do Q, QA at the press, right? <laughs> um, and could see the machines and understand how these printing drums rolled ink onto the paper in a particular order, right? That CMYK isn't just a color, you know, uh, sort of color space or a way of like building up color. Uh, there's sequence to that process with mm-hmm. an intention, right? And seeing how that worked helped me understand how you could manipulate it. It's like, oh, knowing that, that that color comes later, when you create a design that explicitly identifies that that color should print over that other one, you will have a different color effect than if you simply, or if you make that same choice kind of by accident or don't know that you can make that choice, right? Uh, it's like understanding that uh, how bricks can reveal to you the potential that you could take one of those bricks and turn it 90 degrees and create a design element out of the thing that sticks out of the wall a little bit, right? But to, if you don't understand how that modular system kind of goes together, you may not see the opportunity in how to manipulate the medium. And I sort of don't, um, I don't buy the argument that a pursuit of understanding technical implementation is somehow in contrast with uh, or precludes the ability to think about things conceptually or or otherwise. Or I think there's kind of these false dichotomies. I'm like, oh, the designer who codes is somehow not user centered, right? I'm like, like, no, like one is about implementation and production and understanding how things are built, and the other is understanding why and for whom you would build those things. These are complementary sets of knowledge. <laughs> um, and what I've just found for me personally, that when, or really this is an externalization of my own internal experience. I feel like I've been a better designer for this reason, but I find that when designers who care to understand how things are built and attempt to build them, the things they make, I think is an indication of other personality traits that are also good for designers to have. Sure, There there is a degree of self-education, really. I think these things are basically learned by doing. You have to, you know, you repeatedly fail when you try to build software, essentially, until you don't fail, right? Um, A commitment to gaining knowledge over a long period of time, like really like applied effort, an ability to switch between sort of procedural logic in a way, A, B choices and understanding things like that, and what something looks or feels like, you know, Mm -hmm. sort of more emotionally. And and I think that kind of well-roundedness is an indication of, success and the kinds of experiences we're trying to create. Interesting. Yeah, it certainly, I mean, it speaks to the growth mindset of hopefully the people you, you're you working with, right? They really want to learn how things are, are made. Right. Yep. Which seems like common sense. It feels to me like that would be something any designer would want to, to know. But I think when it comes to code, there is this sort of strange either or debate that happens, and I'm not sure why. I think there are a lot of reasons. 
actually. I think one, I mean, you start to put these in the context of an organization or a team or a business. We haven't really experienced this much at Etsy at all. And I think it has to do with how design and engineering work together. But there's a part of it, which is, um, that's my job, not your job. Mm. Right? Um, it's always a dangerous territory, I think. Like our job is actually delivering value to our customers. <laughs> right. You all have to work together. Right. You have particular things you are responsible for at the end of the day. And I think, you know, if a designer engaging in the execution of production code is introducing, you know, more bugs, you know, is is causing workflow problems, then they're not doing it well enough. Like that is a that is a real problem, right? So it's not about kind of willy-nilly amateur work. We're talking about, you know taking that seriously. Um, but I think you get in some environments where there's a little bit of that. So uh, there could be an engineering culture that's like, that's our thing, mm-hmm. not your thing. Mm-hmm. Um, or don't mess around with our elegant version of doing that, which again, is not really a cultural thing we have here so much because it's so kind of like blurry. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm somehow question my own identity when someone else is capable of doing the thing I'm capable of, even though that's not like their deep expertise. So, you know, I think there's stuff like that. I think another, this is a really risky one, but just thinking that, uh, this is somehow more efficient than, mm. oh, if I have a designer who can execute code, like I'm now I don't need to hire an engineer or like right. we don't need front engine, front end engineers. Designers do that. And you're like packing these other responsibilities <laughs> into the designer's role. That is very dangerous. And I think what you'll end up with is designers who spend far too much time doing technical implementation than also doing the other kinds of thinking they need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's super risky. And I think that's one one area of like aversion to this is someone has either seen, you know, someone has seen that happen, right? They're like, oh no, we had designers who could, they basically spent it all their, spent all their days doing front end engineering mm-hmm. and not design, not actually designing. I mean, whatever actually designing means, but that, and I think there's, there's something valid there. That's a, that's an error in, that's a weakness in execution, not a weakness in concept. Mm-hmm. There is an argument. I think that, uh, Again, it's an execution thing. I think this is where like designers need to learn. It can be very easy to get totally distracted in a technical space and spend all your time there. And for people who love making things, you can fall in love with that and only be there. <laughs> right? You get very, very satisfied tweaking CSS all day long. <laughs> right? Right? In the same way, you yeah, get really satisfied just like knitting all day long. You know, it kind of it gets to that kind of. Mm-hmm. It can be. Um, hypnotic and kind of satisfying in that way. I think if people have observed that happen, uh, they can think, wow, that designer doesn't back up and think about the context of their work or try to solve these problems. I can imagine that those things happen, but that's not a reason not to pursue a technical understanding of things. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those are kind of, uh, those are just bad habits gone, you know, gone awry. Mm. Um, Yeah. So those are, (laughs) <laughs> interesting there's some thoughts on that debate yeah, yeah some great insights there though you're right i mean I, I hadn't thought about the idea that you know it's sort of like let's let's keep everyone doing what they're responsible for because otherwise somebody might end up with all the jobs <laughs> for because of a general lack of awareness of what it is people do typically <laughs> right yeah exactly and that's like really risky one i think like it floats up to this high level narrative it's <laughs> like oh there's this world of designers who code me, maybe more uh, producty centric founder of a small startup, and I start thinking, you know, and I've got limited resources to manage, and I start thinking to myself, well, we're just going to get these like deep in the stack engineers, and we're going to hire designers that basically do two jobs for the price of one, right? And that is like that is some dangerous thinking, <laughs> right? Um, mm-hmm. Crazy, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, so, so just a couple more questions for you. What, what do you, um, what's grabbing your attention, either people or projects that can be design related or not? I'm, I'm always curious to hear sort of where people are, um, finding interesting projects and people these days. Yeah. I've, um, I've been really excited recently look, thinking a lot about online retail brands that are trying to go offline. Uh, or need to to like reach new audiences, and there's some parallels to Etsy, but I'm, I'm, I really mean like sort of these almost like digital native products, things that really were born in the last four or five years that ship physical products, and part of their sort of value proposition in a way is that you don't need to go to a store, mm-hmm. and yet, and yet they many of them are I think are reaching a point, right or wrong. I mean, it's very curious to me to try to figure this out where where they're. Um, starting to express themselves in retail footprints. I think Warby Parker is an interesting example of this. Mm-hmm. Harry's, Casper, Bonobos. There's all these brands that are um, really born as e-commerce brands. Now, those are all ones that ship physical products and, and things, but uh, um, that are expressing those brands in retail environments now, either their own retail environments or with you know uh, partnering with other brands or being inside bigger retailers. I find that really fascinating and I've been spending my time trying to explore that space a little bit because I think that may be this surprising vector that I didn't expect. And I think a lot of other people didn't expect about the relationship between like online and off Hmm. that feels like this, you know, the sort of magic space people have been talking about for a long time. (laughs) And I think we, we kind of like we imagined it in this world that was somehow like the, the, uh, this moment you have when the apple's, or, or something where you've pre-bought the item online and you just show them your app when you walk in and then you get the product like the same day, which is interesting and convenient and great. Or the, you know, your Amazon locker that like ships to some location near your house and then you can go pick it up or whatever these kinds of things are. Those are all getting on this online offline space. Mm. Um, but they, they, they're these sort of convenience plays mm. and it's like, this is really convenient and that reflects positively on the, on the brand because customers like convenience. But these other things, these other brands, I think, are, are doing stuff that's more like um, we want people to understand more about our brand or experience our brand and product differently. And so we actually need to get in front of them in the real world. Mm. And that to me is really, really um, fascinating. Uh, I love this. I love this idea of the like the dance between those Mm-hmm. Uh, the dance between those two things. There, there's one other kind of related one. Um, uh, Adidas, like the mm-hmm. you know, athletic brand, uh, has this really, really focused use app they call Confirmed. Mm-hmm. Adidas Confirmed. And it's effectively taking all of the behaviors, like the consumer behaviors and the constraints they put around stuff, around kind of like sneaker culture and, and um like limited edition sneakers and kind of like getting these sneakers on the day they come out, taking all that and packaging it up into this app experience that basically replaces waiting in line at a store with competing in a way for access to the to the product and to the product inventory through an app. And they're doing things like using geolocation to identify whether you're whether you have access to the to the product or not. Like is it launching in your area? Hmm. Uh, so it's very similar to you need to go to that store and wait outside. Like literally that store is going to have it. You need to go there. Similar constraint, but now a person doesn't need to leave their house, but they need to be within the geographic region <laughs> Adidas has defined in order to 
use that feature in the app. It's re- there's really interesting stuff happening there. Um, I think they're taking very, very specific customer behaviors from a specific like segment and softwareizing them. Mm-hmm. In a, in a, yeah, it's just far more specialized than a kind of a generic like e-commerce experience. Mm. And I'm, I'm finding that pretty, pretty fascinating. That is, uh, that's interesting. The blurring of online and off. I mean, they clearly must know their customers very well. Um, yeah, that right? I think is a really an interesting one. Mm. Um, yeah. Mm. And you, you would not be able to, I don't think even conceive of something like that and certainly not execute it if you didn't have an intimate understanding for the motivations of the customers. Mm. But what I think is really neat about something like that too, that's funny cause I'm kind of like, I'm becoming increasingly interested for reasons like this, like sort of in that space. But if I imagine from the outside, as, as a person heavily invested in that space, there's no reason to have that brand's app on your phone or to have that, a daily interaction with that brand's own experience. And now there is. Mm-hmm. Right? They've taken a thing that was like, follow these people on Twitter and Instagram or read these blogs, you know, go to the sneaker culture website and then go to a store. And have turned that into an Adidas logo on the home screen of your phone that sends you push notifications about stuff, right? And I think the way they've kind of like owned, found a way to own that conversation and be super present is really smart and and interesting. Like I couldn't imagine having any other like shoe brand app on my phone. It just, just doesn't seem relevant. You know, like, <laughs> like why would that exist? And yet they've created a reason for that to exist that actually has utility mm-hmm. um, uh, and is somewhat fun. You know, certainly like game mechanics at play and some of this. Uh, yeah, I find that quite quite fascinating. Mm. All right. One last final question for you. Um, just sort of a, an odd one, perhaps, but I'm always curious what people do uh, outside of work when you're not at Etsy. What, what, how do you refuel? What do you do? Oh, this is going to sound so boring. <laughs> um, I really like... I really like watching documentary films. Often my dogs are hanging out <laughs> when we do that. Um, me and my wife watching, yeah, watching our documentaries. And I really enjoy dining. I like different dining experiences. I like a nice dinner with a candle at the table. Like this is pretty basic <laughs> stuff, you know. I like I like an appetizer and a glass of wine. That's how I. You know, um, uh, this is not boring. This is good. This is yeah. I mean, that really. Is, I think for um, I find those things quite rejuvenating, and also, uh, <laughs> of course, like I never kind of turn off my design mind. So I think like one of the reasons I like dining experiences is kind of abstracting those as a um, as a user experience. You mm-hmm. know, what is what are the interactions with a waiter like, and what's the lighting like in the space, and what's the pacing of the food or not? Yeah, you know, sometimes you have that food that's like really cheap and fast but it's delicious and more satisfying than the slow expensive meal and then other times not you know not at all uh, what are the what are the attributes of those things and why does it work that way you know i'm kind of always pondering pondering that stuff uh, so, no, that's great that's great yeah. okay. <laughs> <laughs> well randy thank you so much for for making time to talk with me today i appreciate it no thank you yeah it was a lot of fun Thank you for listening. You can reach Randy on Twitter at Randy J. Hunt. You can subscribe to the Design Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or TuneIn. And while you're there, leave us a review.